the Bible reading is taken from Judges chapter 1 up to verse 6 on that. And then the next one is Judges chapter 2, 1 to 15. I'm Padma and I'm going to read the Bible today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to take a Bible from there and it shall be the gift from us to you. <clears throat> After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up and first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adinoi Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Chapter 2. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called the place Bohikim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for them neither what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. Because they forsook, forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sown to them. They were in great distress. Here ends the word of the Lord. 
Well, good morning, everyone. It's, it's wonderful to be here this morning as we, we kick off a new sermon series in the book of Judges. It's going to be a big book. There are going to be big messages. It's a book that's scandalous and strange. It has some stories that we probably all know well and some stories we don't. Um, you've probably never heard a sermon series on the whole book, but that's what we're going to do over the next nine weeks. We're going to dive in. So please join me as I pray. Um, if we haven't met, my name's James, and I'd love to get to know you after the, the church service today. But let's pray as we come to God's word today. Heavenly Father, we, we come to a book that is scandalous, it's strange. Sometimes you wonder, what is it doing in your holy word? And yet at the same time, Father, we need to recognize that all scripture is breathed out by you. It's good for rebuking, it's good for teaching, it's good to grow us. And so we, we pray that as we delve into this series, that, that you will change us and transform us and help us to live in a Western culture in the 21st century as followers of Jesus, captivated by your gospel, and wanting to live for you. And so, Father, we pray this for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Compromise is subtle, but it will subtly enslave you. Compromise is that it's, it's, it's subtle, but it will eventually enslave you. Richard Bistrong is an ethics and compliance lecturer, consultant and speaker and he found himself incarcerated for the conspiracy to commit bribery, a violation of the Foreign Correspondence Practice Act. In an article it says, we're not as ethical as we think we are. See that journey of becoming incarcerated led him to reflect on how can honest people how, how honest people can lead themselves and construct a very sophisticated rational, rationalization for doing bad things. He couldn't believe that he did what he did. He thought, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm an honest kind of guy. And he writes that, that the reason we often are willing to compromise subtly is, well, for him, at least I'm not as bad as them. I'm not hurting anyone by doing this conspiracy to, to, for fraud and bribery. You know, in, in a sense, I'm actually doing good. You convince yourself that you're doing good. And, you know, as I look around, everyone else is doing it. And he says, wow, we're not as ethical as we think we are. And he says, he says, he says, you need to make a decision. And you need to rehearse in your mind how you are going to respond to compromising temptations before you face them. See, compromise is subtle but it will subtly enslave you. And so today what we're doing, we're going to open up the first two chapters of the book of Judges and we're going to look at the question about why compromise is so dangerous. We're going to look at two chapters that really are just an introduction to the 21 chapters of the book of Judges. And these opening chapters actually set the scene for us for the remainder of the book. And so how do we find ourselves in the book of Judges? Well, the book of Judges comes after Deuteronomy. It comes after the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And we have the book of Judges that's between Joshua, the leader, and his death, and between one Samuel and the rise of a king called Saul. And how do we get to the book of Judges? Well, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created us in his image. We were delighting in him. We were in his presence. We had intimacy with him, but we compromised. We were kicked out of the garden because of sin. And as you go through Genesis 4, 5, and 6, you start to learn that sin isn't just an action we do, but it's inherent to who we are as people. 
Genesis chapter 12, we see God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to save people through his seed. He's going to call people to himself to be his very dearly loved people. Abraham has a son called Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob. Jacob's a man who is a deceiver. He has 12 sons. One of them's called Joseph. He finds himself in Egypt under the Pharaoh. He gains he gains recognition by Pharaoh and he leads well. The people of God are going through famine and so Jacob sends his sons and they, they eventually come to Egypt. They get fed and there's this period where Israel moved to Egypt and it goes really, really well for them as God's people. But then Joseph dies and Pharaoh forgets and the people of God for 400 years find themselves oppressed, enslaved, beaten and and, and their life is miserable, but God sees their oppression. He sees their slavery, sees that they're captured by the Egyptian gods and he bends down and he saves them through Moses. He raises up Moses to save them. God parts the Red Sea. He saves these people out of oppression by doing mighty works. They find themselves in the wilderness. God speaks through Moses and he says to them, I'm going to give you a land of milk and honey. You're going to go in there. You're going to, you're going to conquer the land. And it says you're going to go in there and remove the Canaanites. But why were they to remove the Canaanites? Well, it wasn't, for a mili- it wasn't because the Canaanites were a military threat, but they were a spiritual cancer. Have a look at Exodus chapter 23, verse 33, where God says to them, it's going to come on the screen, it says, do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare or a thorn in my, into you. And he's saying, hey, it's not because they're a military threat, but they're a spiritual cancer that's going to take over you where you are meant to be worshiping the one true God. These people will cause you to sin. And so, so you're to go into this land and clear, clear them from it. And in Joshua, and then we get Joshua and Caleb, we get the book of Joshua, they go into the land, they conquest, they seem to have relative success. You get to Joshua 24, this wonderful leader, he, he calls all the people of Israel together in Joshua 24, and he gives them a sermon, and he reminds them of the faithfulness, the salvation, and the promises of God, saying, look what God has done. We praise him. And Joshua says, you know, that, that memory verse that you've all probably got up in your home, to, you know, choose who you'll serve today. And, and Joshua's like, I'm going to serve Yahweh. And we all go, we're going to serve God. And the people go, we will serve Yahweh this day. We will do it. And Joshua says, nah, you can't. You won't. Then they go, no, no, Joshua, we will. We'll be just like, we will serve Yahweh. We will serve him this day. We will choose. And Joshua I don't think so. I think it's not going to go good for you. He said, no, 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 we will. And so Joshua dies and, and we get to Judges. And see, the book of Judges spans this time frame between Joshua's death and the rise of Saul. And it's probably a period of just over 300 to nearly 400 years in the life of Israel that's filled with disorder and chaos that's filled with disaster and spiraling down. But see, in verses 1 and 2, have a look at verses 1 to 2. It starts off like the book of Judges is going to be a great book. It's like they're doing well. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked Yahweh, they're inquiring of the Lord, what's our next action? Who of us should go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And what's Yahweh's, what's the Lord's response? Judah is to go up. I've given the land into their hands. That's a good thing. And it looks promising. It looks like this book's going to be, starts off well. But as we get deeper into this book, we're going to find 
that this book actually tells us and it answers the question, how did God's people get so far off track? Why is compromising so dangerous? See, compromise is subtle, but it will subtly enslave you. And so this morning I ask this question, why is followers of Jesus, this side of the cross, why is disciples, is compromising so dangerous? To compromise on the word of God and his way, well, why is it so dangerous? Well, firstly, it's dangerous because it feels okay. It actually feels okay at first. See, compromise is when you make a concession that erodes Jesus' values and his word and, and you disobey him. Compromise feels good. Because it begins well. It appears that moment you compromise, it feels like you're going to succeed in life. It improves your life. You feel better about it. And therefore, because it succeeds, you obviously feel better. And so when you first compromise, it's, it appears to be going well for you. You know, maybe for you that things have been a bit rough at home in the relationship with your spouse. That maybe the, the love isn't there. That there's sort of been the kids have been so much in your life that you've forgotten about each other. And over time, there seems to be you've lost a bit of intimacy. And so, all of a sudden, you start to compromise. You think, oh, it's okay to flirt with someone at work a little bit. And before long, you know, it feels good because they're giving you the intimacy and that, that sort of response that you're not getting from your your spouse. Or, or maybe today you're you're just you're so yearning to have a relationship with someone else. To have that intimacy. And you go, well, God, God wants me to be happy. He wants me to, to have to find love. And so you compromise on who you'll date. And it feels good to begin with. And in and, 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 and all counts, it might go well. And what you find here in chapter one of Judges is that they're actually starting to compromise even from verse three. Have a look at verse two. The Lord answered, Judah, you'll go up. I've given the hands into you. But look at verse 3. The men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us. God never said, take the clan of Simeonites. He just says, take Judah. And so they go, well, we'll take you up and we'll fight this. And then, then you, we'll take you down with us to go and help you out. And so there's a hint here that they're obeying God's word, but they're only obeying it in half. It, it's, they're compromised. Look at verse 8. The men of Judah attack Jerusalem and they take it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. When you get to Judges chapter 15, you'll see that that's not fully true. It appears they didn't really take it. They let them stay. Verse 17, they do it again. They take the Simeonites with them. They go with them. Verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. So God's with them. It looks like it's succeeding. They took possession of the hill country. But now have a look at the next word. It's a but. Right? You've got a but. They were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. There's a but there. There's a big but. Now, iron chariots to us don't seem like that much of a big deal. But in a way, iron chariots in the ancient world were sort of like the the fighter jets of Top Gun Maverick. You know, like you see Tom Cruise, he flies around in his jet. Like you don't want to cross the paths of Tom Cruise, even if he's an actor. You don't, I don't want to cross him in a fighter jet. They're the powerhouse, and so were the chariots and the horses. And so Judah's like, whew, this is a big power weapon. But isn't that interesting because they've seen Jericho fall? 
They've seen the crossing of the Red Sea. They've seen the providing of manna. They've seen God free them. They've heard the stories of, of Yahweh actually freeing them from Egypt. So how would chariots be any a big deal to the people of God? And by the end, by the get to verse 20, you start to see that there's hints of compromise. It's subtle. It just, but they appear to have obeyed God, right? They, they have obeyed God, but it's only a half obeying. There's a little bit of doubt there, right? They, Judah takes the Simeonites. And in a sense, at the same time, they're succeeding. God's with them. And so you can think, well, maybe God approves of this. They still have success. They still conquer the land to some point. And there's the danger. There's a danger for us that we can assume just because something appears to be bearing fruit among the people of God, that it's good to presume that it's okay. Do you realize it's actually very possible to be someone who carries the mark of success in the life of the church, in the eyes of other people, and yet you've compromised? You've be- it looks like you're bearing fruit, and yet you haven't. You know, you can have a successful youth group. You can have a successful kids ministry. You can have a successful kids club. You can have, you can have a successful victory cafe. It can feel like people are bearing fruit. And yet it doesn't line up with the word of God. It can appear like it succeeds. Because see, when you compromise, compromising means you, 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 you negotiate with yourself that it's okay. You tell yourself it'll be fine. Uh, it's a week of first, our youngest has gone to year seven this year and it's sort of taken me back to my teenage years. And I remember as a kid, I used to have a friend I used to catch the bus home with and then he'd ring you, not on mobile phones. It was back in the day, you know, when you had to press the buttons and he'd ring me when I got home and he'd say, hey, do you want to come up? I'll get on the bike. We're going to go yabbying, we'll go swimming. So we went up to a farm and we'd go yabbing in this big dam and it was cold and you'd go and catch yabbies. I'd sometimes take them home, put them in the fish tank, much to my mum's disgust because it smelt the house out. But other times we'd cook them. And so you know how you cook yabbies? You get the big pot and you boil the water and you chuck them in and they go red instantly, right? That's how you do it. Now, please don't, if your kids do this at home this afternoon, don't blame me. But here's, I don't know how true this is, but if you throw a frog in boiling water, supposedly the frog will jump out. Get out, the boiling water, it gets out, it doesn't kill it. But they say that if you put a frog in cold water and you slowly heat that water to the point of boil, it will kill itself. It will never jump out. And I reckon compromise is a bit like that. It's subtle. But it eventually will enslave you. Why is followers of Jesus' compromise so dangerous to his word? Because it will feel good and it may even for a moment feel like you've had fruit and it succeeds. But here's why it's so dangerous, because it feels okay. But where does it lead to then? Where where does compromise lead to? Well, it's it's disobedience, isn't it? It leads to disobedience. So far far in the story, in Judges 1, it appears like there's no long-term consequences. There's no instant failure. There's no instant setback in the first couple of verses. But once you get down to verse 21, you start to see in Judges 1, there seems to be a setback. It starts to shift. We start to shift to the northern tribes of Israel. And what we find is there is failure that's even worse. And in verses 27 to 36, you shift from partial obedience 
of Judah to sadly a compromise, a complete demise of the tribe of Dan by the end of 34, where they don't take the land and instead they're taken over. See, in those early ver- we, we, it just gets worse and worse and worse in chapter 1. But then we get to chapter 2, and we see that they've compromised by disobeying and trusting in the word of God. Have a look there at verses 1 to 5. The angel of the Lord, now there's a messenger, it probably wasn't someone in white clothing with wings and a halo. It's probably just a messenger who looked like them, who walked with them. And, and the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, which is the place of tears, and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. Oh, yeah. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant. That's a promise with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars, the places where they make sacrifices. Yet you have disobeyed me, which means they've done the very opposite. Why have you done this? And I've said also, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares or they'll be a thorn in your side. And when the angel of the Lord spoke these things to all of them, they wept aloud. Israel's failed to keep the covenant. They moved from God, they moved from having intimacy with God to having intimacy with the Canaanites. What we're going to find as we go through the book of Judges, we'll find that the Israelites are actually no better than the Canaanites. In fact, by the time we get to Judges 21, you'll start to go, hang on, they're even worse. Compromise never starts as if it will lead you to where you think it will lead you to. And the people of God, you know, they they probably thought to themselves at this point, we would never follow the Canaanite religion. Surely they won't influence us enough. They won't affect us at all. Surely. Now, see, the, 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 the gods of Canaan, were, there was many. They were plural. They had many gods. They had Baal. They had Ashtaroth. They had a variety of them. And in this passage, we hear about Baal and then the Ashtaroth as well. And we hear about them because, see, Baal and Ashtaroth are the gods of rain and fertility. And so if you wanted it to rain... If you wanted your crops to grow, you needed Baal and Ashtaroth to have sex. They pictured them having sex, and so that was what they thought. And, then, and, and as they climax, it would rain and fertility would happen. And so for you, if, if your world's not going so well with your crops and your food, they would have to have sex. So therefore, if you then, as a Canaanite was failing in your crops and it was rain and it wasn't going your way, guess what you would have to do? You would have to appease the gods. And so you would practice what those two gods were doing. And so the men would go to the shrine, prostitutes at the temple and sleep with them. Now, if you're a man and that's your religion, there would be something attractive about that. There's something attractive about that in that world. And you can imagine that the, the, the Israel, you know, the ones who here have, have now covered themselves with Canaan, their crops are failing. I, my mortgage is too big. I need to buy a header. I need to buy a tractor. I, I need to get my debt off my, my plans. And so, love, I've got to go to the temple. The rain hasn't fallen and next year we're not going to have food on our tables. Dear, I'm, I'm just going to have to go to the temple to the shrine prostitutes. They were wicked people. And Israel is caught up in this practice. 
And, and, and we see that there's a, wicked, there's a wicked king as well there in, in the first chapter. The wicked king, Adonai Bezek, right? He's, he's wicked and depraved. Like he cuts the thumbs off the warriors. He cuts their big toes off them to humiliate them. And you imagine having no thumb and no big toe and you've got to get the food from under the table. How on earth, have you ever tried to get food without a thumb? They're just wicked. That's why they had to remove the Canaanites from the land. It's not because of some military threat, but it's that they would become a spiritual cancer to the people of God who've been rescued by Yahweh. See, back in verse 19, it says they were unable to drive the chariots out. By verse 2 of chapter 2, we actually start to realise it's actually more like they don't want to drive them out. They've made a covenant with them. Now, to think of people, the people of God, prostituting themselves in shrine temples and that kind of worship, it does seem unlike us. It seems distant, without any relevance for us today. A world filled with pluralism where there was many gods that you'd bow down and worship. You'd, you'd put your, sometimes you'd sacrifice your child to the god of Molech. And rather than cleansing the cancer, they take it on and they synchronize the Israelites. They take a bit of Yahweh and they take a bit of the Canaanite religion. And yet if we, I think if we actually look close enough to the world that we live in, I actually don't think it's much different in Western Sydney. In a time where we have individualism and self-expression are things to be pursued. As we are told that we are to do what's right in our own eyes. People not wanting to or to wanting to know or need God. So the threat of syncretism of taking a bit of every religion and compromise is actually here for us as believers of God. There's a threat of image, prestige, reputation, personal success. It's all there in our face. And so how do we live as Christians then in that world? Well, we don't go on a crusade to military take over the world. See, we're in the new covenant. We're, we're this side of Jesus. We're not a political nation, but we are a, a special people. And so we're not there to go wipe them out and with military threat. No, no, no. We are to, to go to them with Jesus. See, in Israel, the central place to worship was Jerusalem. But Jesus comes, he's resurrected, he ascends to heaven. And now we go out, it's not going back to Jerusalem, but he is with us and we go to the four corners of the earth. And the best place, I reckon, to find out how do we live in a world where there's many gods is go and read 1 Peter. Here's how you live as exiles in a world of plurality of gods. And in 1 Peter, it says, live such godly lives among the pagans... That even though they may bag you out, they'll see how good you are and when Christ returns, they'll give glory to him. How do we live? We live such godly lives among the people. We don't compromise by taking on the idolatry, but we live godly lives there. So compromise leads to disobedience. And so we need to be sharp with sin and compromise in our life. But here's why it matters. Here's why it actually matters because... Compromise exchanges salvation for enslavement. It, it, it's, it, it exchanges the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and it enslaves us to the God that we want to worship and find life from. The people chose idols over God. And we see that in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2. Now here's a hint. You may think, did Joshua die twice? 
Because it mentions he died in chapter 1 and he died in chapter 2. And you think, well, did he get... No. Basically, here's what's happened. Chapter 1 gives you the facts of what happened. Chapter 2 tells you why it happened. And so chapter 2 gives an intro and a prologue to the whole book of what's going to happen. And in verses 11 and 14, we see that they chose idols. But I wonder whether the people of Israel thought, well, why expel the people when we can use them? Why fully remove them when they could be an asset for us? Why get rid of them? Let us cut a deal with the Canaanites. They can become our servants and we can be more productive. We can get more things. Like It's a wonderful resource. They're going into this land and they've forgotten that God said, I'll provide for you. And they said, well, why don't we make us a deal with these Canaanites who we take over and they can become our servants? Make us more productive. Give us more money. Make our life more easier. Now, we're not going to follow their religion, surely. But see, compromise doesn't free you. It will eventually enslave you, and sin enslaves you to itself. See, we're surrounded by a culture consumed in the gods of self-image, self-gratification, individualism, sport, wealth, status, relationships, all buying for our allegiance to say that's what we want. See, the idolatry of money, the idol of money, it promises you power, it promises you prestige, it promises you status, it promises you relationships, it promises you honour and freedom. But when you get the money that you want, it's never enough. And so it enslaves you to that cycle over and over again. And in the meantime, that pursuit of money, it destroys you. Destroys your family and your relationships because you're never satisfied anymore. Or maybe it's the idol of reputation. See, reputation, it promises you friends. It promises you status. It promises you relationships and importance among the community. But it holds you captive because you always have to have it together all the time because people are looking to you. And it holds you captive. And so what you find yourself is you've got to work longer hours. You've got to check things five times rather than two times because you don't want to be found as being wrong because your reputation is based upon you always being right. And the problem with the idol of reputation, it enslaves you because when you mess up, when you mess up, your world falls apart because you can never be wrong. It falls in a heap. Everyone looks up to you and so therefore you blame everyone else except you for what's taken place. And it enslaves you to bitterness, anger, and dishonesty. Now, now we may not offer up children as sacrifices to the God of Molech. Like we might not kill our children on the sacrifice to the altar. But we may be sacrificing our kids at the altar of being a good and right parent. The promise of a better future for your kids and a successful career. To, to have made it and to have everything right in their lives. You know, you, you take them to five musical lessons a week, to mass and to an English tutor, because you need them to go through university for you so you feel like you've been a good parent. You try to find freedom and success through your own kids. And in the meantime, it encapsulates you and enslaves you to them that you end up pushing them. And you become bitter and angry because they haven't succeeded how you wanted them to succeed. See, Israel thought that they were taking on the Canaanites as slaves. But funny enough, the Canaanites enslaved them. 
They found themselves enslaved to their gods. And that means God is righteously angry about that. His chosen people have exchanged him for enslavement. He's justly angry because they have not taken him at his word. He's justly angry because they've prostituted themselves to the Canaanite gods. Why? Why can God be a jealous God? Now, you might be here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're seeking, maybe you're here with a friend and you think, well, isn't it wrong for God to be jealous? Like, because it's, it's, it's not good to be jealous of your sister because she's got, you know, the latest iPhone and I don't. You know, it's not good to be jealous of your family who's got a nicer house than you. And you think, well, how can God be jealous? Well, that's not what it means by being jealous. God being jealous, it's a bit like this. You've, you've got a husband and a wife and the wife has always loved her husband has always had intimacy, has always laid her life down for him, has always comforted him, has always been there for him. And the husband goes out and commits adultery, adultery with another woman from work. Imagine if the, 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 the wife responded by, ah, it's, it's, it's okay, it's not a real big deal. That's garbage, isn't it? We'd be horrified. Because real love, where there is real love, there is real jealousy. There's good jealousy to be had, to have that intimacy and to have their affections, to have, their, have them invested in you. That's a good thing. And God's jealous because they've exchanged him, the Lord of all, for created things. And so in verse 4, in verse 3 and verse 14, we see how God responds to them. Do you see that in verse 3? I will not drive them out before you. Verse 14 of chapter 2. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands. He gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them. And so God hands them over. But see, it's in his righteous anger. His righteous anger upon these people is to turn them back to him. See, look at verse 4. They, they weep and they cry aloud. But here's a question. It says they wept. What are, the, what are their tears? Like, what kind of tears are they? Are they real tears? And is this going to be a turning point in the book? Here's what I mean. Like, I've got, you know, if anyone's been a parent long enough, you, you, you know that kids cry. But there's different types of tears. There's different types of crying. You know, they break their arm. It's probably good that they cry. You hope that they cry. But then, you know, a picture this, uh, I suppose, this is poor my kids in this illustration, you know, you say to your kids, hey, we, we don't, we'll use PlayStation 5, we don't have a PlayStation 5, but we say to your kids, excuse me, you know, every day after school this week, you're not to play the PlayStation 5, but you can have the PlayStation 5 on weekends, all right? That's, that's your word, you've asked them to obey it. So you come home on Monday, and you catch them on the PlayStation 5, so you pull them up, and they cry. They have tears, but they've got tears because they can no longer play the PlayStation 5. They have tears possibly because I've been caught out and I'm letting myself down and I thought I could never do such a thing I, and, and so you cry tears. There's other tears of, 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 well, I'm just crying because of the consequences of what's taken place. Sometimes there's tears because they really recognise that they haven't trusted your word. So they've disobeyed your word. So the question that rises in verse 4 is, which one is it with Israel. Is it real repentance? Well, the rest of the book of Judges is going to actually show us whether it is or whether it isn't. 
Repentance means making changes to one's life so that you don't repeat it again. It's different to being found out. And for us, we live now for Jesus, who's our allegiance. He's our Lord. He's our word. He is the word become flesh and dwelt among us. And so it matters how we live for him. And so compromise exchanges freedom in Christ, exchanges salvation for enslavement. But how does it happen? Well, it happens because of failure to remember. Failure to remember. Failure to remember it's a relationship, not religion. It's a failure to remember it's not religion, but it's saving grace. Like in verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They didn't know. It's not that they've forgotten, right? Because how would you forget about the crossing of the Red Sea? How would you forget about the plagues of Israel? How would you forget about the fall of Jericho? It's, it's, it's not going to happen. Like, the stories have been passed down. So it's not that they don't know God, but they just don't know God. They know who God is, but they don't actually know God. There's no relationship. There's no intimacy. See, this word for know here, they, they did not know God. It's, it's the word for intimacy. It's, it's often got sexual connotations with Adam and Eve in the garden of this intimacy and relationship between two. And here it says they don't have it. They know of God, but they don't know him. They do not delight in God. It has this idea that, that God no longer impacts their decisions and their life. He has no influence over them. And so therefore they don't know God. But did you notice something here in the text? It's in one generation. We have people who have seen the salvation of God and the city of Jericho to the next generation who want nothing to do with God. Now, isn't that a warning for us today that one generation can be sold out for the gospel and the next generation can move on and the next generation completely slip out of hands? It's a warning, isn't it? Because if, if you're here today, maybe you're a son, maybe you're a daughter, maybe you're a newlywed, maybe you've grown up coming to this church, maybe you sing the songs, maybe you know the memory verses, maybe you went to kids' church every week, you scrub up well, you live right, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't sleep around. But I wonder, how might, how might you become a part of the lost generation? Why do you come to church? Is it always what you've done? Culturally, mum and dad want you to come to church, and so you come. You're keeping them happy. You know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. So it's a warning for us today, isn't it, to go, do I know God? Do I know about God or do I actually know Jesus personally? Where are you at today? But at the same time, it's a warning that, that, that one generation can slip. We can slip in the midst of church life. You know, one generation, we get concerned about singing or we get caught up in a building project or we get caught up in whatever the, the next thing that comes along and we miss the generation. And so here's the question, parents, are your children learning religion from you or are they learning the precious nature of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ from you? Do they see religion or do they see grace? Do they see a Pharisee or do they see someone being transformed as a disciple of Jesus? Do they see that the gospel takes center stage in your life? 
Do they see that it affects every single one of your decisions in life, whether it's your work, whether it's your career, whether it's your family, whether it's your house, even whether it's your bank account? Do they see the precious nature of Jesus that you will meet every Sunday with the people of God, week in, week out? Do they see that you actually delight in the grace and the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do they see that it's just a second priority for you depending on what you've booked in or what you haven't got on that day? Do they see that it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything? See, compromise is a failure to remember. And the gospel, according to Paul, isn't just for those who don't believe. It's actually for everyone. It's even for the believers in Rome and Corinth. It's for us in Western Sydney. Because see, when we fail to obey Jesus, we've failed to remember Jesus' gospel. See, the old nature is always knocking on the door. So have you rehearsed how you'll respond when it knocks? So as disciples of Jesus, why is compromise so dangerous? It's, comp- it's so dangerous because it will feel okay at first. It will lead to disobedience. It will mean that you'll exchange freedom for enslavement. And it happens because we fail to remember the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, chapter 2 is actually a picture of the rest of the book. Now, I want to put a slide up on the screen that's going to show you that, that over and over again, as chapter 2, it gives us a, a foretaste of what's to come. And there's this cycle that goes over and over again through the book that you'll see. In verse 11 here, we see the people of God, they rebel. And as they rebel, in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 2, they, they are ruined. They are oppressed by God. He brings his anger upon them. In verse 15, we see that God uses that distress for them to turn back to him. And how does he do that? Well, in his compassion and his faithfulness and his unrelenting grace, he he sends a judge to rescue the people of God and that judge rescues the people and they have rest while ever that judge is alive. And then in verse 19, the judge dies. And guess what happens? The people of God go back to rebellion every single time. Ruined because the judge dies. See, God sends a rescuer and that as a judge dies... They get ruined. Now, our oldest son, his first week at high school, and it took me back to my days in tech drawing. Um, you learn how to draw and draw architecture kind of stuff, and you have a T-square. And I remember a double period between recess and lunch. We had this teacher. He'd come, and he'd walk in, and it was just quiet. He'd teach for 10 minutes, and we were all doing our diligency, doing everything well. It's a bunch of blokes in a room. But what this teacher often did was he'd, he'd say, I've got to duck out for a moment. And it often was nearly the whole two periods. And guess what would happen when he left? Anarchy broke loose. T-squares were in fans. Dusters were thrown up into when we had chalk. Chairs were thrown across the room. Someone was on watch. And anarchy broke loose. He steps back in the building. Peace. Rest. It gives us a hint to our nature of the anarchy that's in us. It reveals something about the true heart of us. Why, why are we like that? The oppression of sin over and over in our lives that we cannot break. Because it points to our need of another one who can break our sin and compromise. 
See, Judges shows us in these early chapters that sin isn't simply an action that we choose to perform or do, but, we, but it's something that has power over us and it holds us in our grips. See, we need friends that have a view of sin like this. Otherwise, you're never going to see the beauty and the gloriousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel he brings. Because until we have this view of sin... You're going to keep moving around in religion and moralism rather than delighting and being changed by Jesus who's had the victory over sin and death. See, if we learn anything from the book of Judges is this, we can't do it. We can't break this chain of sin in our lives. It shows us the wickedness and the depravity of our hearts that we are, we are, cap we are capable of anything and that we'll go to any extreme when it takes hold of us in the name of freedom and idolatry. Story after story gets worse and worse. But the people are saved from their enslavement and their bondage to sin. But the rescuer dies every time. The judge dies and the people go back to ruin, down and down and down. And so by the time you get to the end of Judges, is there any hope for the humanity, any hope for the people of God? See, Judges is a book that points us forward to the faithfulness of God and his promises. It points us forward to the need of a saviour who will not die, one who would come, who would die on a cross and have victory over sin and death and he'd be raised to eternally reign and never die again. That's the saviour who can break the power of sin and death in our lives. See, Judges points us forward to a need of a king who could lead his people in a way of righteousness and truth. See, Judges points us forward to our need of a king who is unrelenting in his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in pursuing us and your unrelenting grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Father, today, help us to remember your goodness and your gospel and all that you have done for us in Christ. Help us not to compromise, to see this subtly, but to see how dangerous it is. And so, Father, right now, help us to rehearse in our mind how we will respond in those moments where we are tempted to question your word. Father, help us to walk in righteousness and truth. And we pray this for your sake. Amen.